Hey, this is Sasha Shell. Welcome to Dear Seekers. We are a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates interesting, intriguing, and insightful women in the fashion, arts, and design space. For these women, spoken words might not be their first language. In fact, because of this, they intend to use other mediums to convey, deliver, and communicate. For example, for today's guest, being vocal and self-promoting is definitely not her forte. But she has produced and promoted some of the hottest music festivals and parties in the city, and has tried to bring more female DJs in the Toronto techno scene. Those parties were so crazy. Sometimes we would have like, like a fish tank shatter, and there'd be like crabs and lobsters on the dance floor. Oh my um, god! Yeah, instead of birthday cakes, we'd have like lobsters with like sparklers coming out. It was just really nuts. Yeah, pretty insanely creative, right? But music is not her only language. She is also deeply embedded in the food industry, and has created three restaurants in three years. And on top of all these, she is also working as a senior strategist at Sigli, an award-winning advertising and creative agency. In 2014, she was named 30 Under 30 by Marketing Magazine, and this year, she was honored as one of Toronto's top brand stars by Adweek New York. So, are you ready? Today's conversation is with Nancy Chan. This neuroscience graduate constantly pushes cultural boundaries, create unique brand experiences, and marry science with art. I was born in Massachusetts, but I grew up in Hong Kong mostly from five to eighteen. So you yeah. moved to Hong Kong when you were five. I was born in the states. I moved to Toronto when I was one, and then I moved to Hong Kong when I was five. So I basically grew up in Hong Kong.、Oh, okay,、yeah. so you stayed in Toronto for four years. Yeah, but I, I was so young. I didn't. didn't really I don't.、Matter. I don't know anything at that time. But yeah, my dad went to U of T. He did school there. He did his postdoctorate. So why did you guys move to Hong Kong?、Um, for work, actually, he was finding it tough to find a good job here, and it was really like moving. Between Hong Kong or I think it was、uh, Nova Scotia or New Zealand, and I'm so happy he chose Hong Kong because I can't even imagine what I would be like if I grew up in New Zealand. Neuroscientists have discovered the importance of our early childhood years. Eighty percent of our brain is developed by the age three to four, which is the most important time period when our brains are developing connections. Which are shaping our physical, emotional, linguistic, and thinking capabilities and patterns. I'm not a neuroscientist by all means, but out of curiosity, I asked Nancy if constantly moving during her early childhood years has shaped who she is today in any way. That's super weird because yesterday I was having a conversation with my old boss, who used to head up the strategy department in Sydney.、Uh, he's moving on, and we we're talking about how 
we both get bored of stuff like every three years. Like we'll get really into something and then we have to try something different and do something different. And he was moving on to a very different opportunity. And he was like, I think it's because I moved around a lot when I was a kid, like every three years, different schools and and stuff like that. And I was like, no, I don't think it really affected me that much because I thought I, you know, I lived in Hong Kong from five to 18. But now that you say that, that really the more formative is one to the first four years. That actually makes sense because, yeah, it was definitely more tumultuous. We definitely moved around. It was the U.S., Toronto, Ottawa for a little bit, and then Hong Kong. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ottawa yeah. also in the picture. Yeah, I always forget that we lived in Ottawa <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. my sister was born in Ottawa. So, really? Yeah. And you neglect that part. Yeah, I neglected that <laughs> I just... How yeah. much younger she's than you? Uh, she is five years younger. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely a character. Oh, yeah. is she? Yeah. I think, so. I think she influences me as much, maybe more, than I influence her. Um, I think like she's always been very independently minded, even from when she was like seven, eight. She was always very precocious. So she got me into things like music and stuff like that. It was really through her that I started to become passionate about things. Yeah. That was actually my next question. Because music has been almost seemed like embedded in your blood since an early stage. So I wonder how did that come about? Not going to make sense because... You mentioned your sister kind of introduced mm-hmm. that to you. So let's talk about music then. Do you think your sister was the only contributor to that or to something else too? I have a love-hate relationship with music. I'll, I'll, I'll just like admit that. Yeah. Just because um, it was like a big passion of passion of mine and I'm like perfectly honest I got into music because of weed and like (laughs) I smoked smoked a lot of weed in university and out of university so and music was always a part of that I think I um you know if I look at the way that my boyfriend listens to music versus myself I feel like I experience it a little bit different from him and it's very kind of like physical almost when I listen to music I've loved it for that initial feeling and like the discovery of new music you know especially when I was younger I was never the type that only listened to like the same 10 songs and like cry over it I'm not like that but I really just like like to listen to new music and new sounds and new things that are surprising that would get me that kind of reaction I'm looking for But when you turn your passion into your work and you have to start making compromises, it's not just about what you love, you know, because not everybody cares about what music you love. And you start to, like, stress about parts of it that take away from it. And that's really what happened to us. We went through, like, a lot of different traumatic events within our music career that made us have to step away from it. So it is a bit of a love-hate. Now I think I'm in a good place with music, but mm-hmm. for a while I I felt like I didn't finish that industry in the way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to offer people the vision that we planned. So now yeah. looking back, what kind of things you would do differently? That's a, that's a very interesting question. I studied neuroscience, so I did... Um, yeah, a specialist in, in something that's quite hardcore. But 
Throughout university, I was always very interested in music, and I I tried working in music as well. I worked at a promotion company in Shanghai, and I worked with some other、uh, more smaller independent promoters in that city. And then I realized that I wanted to do my music, not just support people on their bookings and their ideas for events. So I came back to Toronto, and with my boyfriend and some other partners, we started getting into promote our own shows and create our own shows. And we would always、um, do it very differently. While before, all the concerts would happen in like Mod Club or the Social and stuff like that. I'm talking about eight years ago, so I don't know if people remember that. And then we would do like unique concepts. And every show has a certain vibe to it, has a certain sound to it, crowd branding experience that we create. So one we did was like called Happy Endings, and it was at a it was at a dim sum restaurant.、Oh. Well, actually, a few of them, a few different dim sum restaurants,、oh, and、nice. it would be like these late night bass raves. And it was they're still some of the best parties I think we've ever thrown. You can get it right the first time because you have no constraints about what a show should be. We're not just like putting an artist in a venue. It was always very strong creative element to it. What is the look of this party like? How do you want people to even maybe dress? Those things come into consideration of the overall vibe we're trying to create and who we're trying to appeal to. Having a strong pause in a music culture, with the "nothing can be done" mentality. Has allowed Nancy to undertake many impressive projects. It wasn't like intentional, like oh, we want to create an experience. That wasn't even in our vernacular at that time. But while、well, now you would hear it all the time, like brand experience, experiential marketing, and stuff like that. But back then, it was just more like oh, we want to bring things that don't really exist here in the city. There was、um, a party in New York that. Um, was also in a Chinese restaurant. When we saw that, we we're like, "Oh, that's so fun!" You know. So I'm not saying that we came up with the most original ideas. Actually, most of the time, we don't. We just think about what are some really interesting ideas that we can bring to the city and make very Toronto. So we're not pure creative in that sense, but we're just observant. So it was more just like that was the driving force. Like we brought music and DJs that weren't being booked in the city. Like no one was doing that kind of music. And then we wanted to do a concept that wasn't a very regular or big thing that happened in Toronto. After years of experience producing and promoting music events, Nancy and her partners thought opening a music club should be the next move. She had a vision, but eventually realized it was too far-fetched for Toronto. It was very challenging because the city, from a bureaucracy standpoint, almost cannot accept that kind of concept. It's okay if you're like a Luminato or a Mocha, like if you have like art and all the the backers behind you. But if you are a young creative company that wants to do something a little bit different, use a unique space, and try to do something that adds to the culture in the city, they don't. I don't think they see it as culture. In a sense, so we got a lot of roadblocks in terms of actually getting this vision to life. We pursued it for three years. What kind of roadblocks? Mostly with the city, mostly with permits, yeah, permits. getting permits. You know, we didn't want to take an existing space. What you see in Toronto a lot is an old concert venue would turn into a new concert venue. 
because they already have the licensing for it. But if you want to take on a whole new space that's never been used before and turn it into a music venue, it is basically impossible. The only places you can legally do that are like club district, the old club district downtown, like entertainment district, maybe some parts in Liberty Village because of these very antiquated zoning laws. But we didn't want to use either of those places. We wanted to do one in Chinatown, actually, because Chinatown feels like home for us, you know, ever since from university going to U of T and then like living in Kensington and stuff like that. Chinatown is home and we wanted to do something really fun there and be part of that neighborhood and be part of making that neighborhood interesting as well. So so that didn't work out. But as we often say, as one door closes, another door opens. Because we go to Berlin all the time and we're always like looking at what are people doing. But we wanted to have like a donor shop in our music club. Because in Berlin, what you would do is like you'd go out all night and then you'd finish your night with like a donor. It's like this Turkish-German sandwich. Well, it's more Turkish than German, but they have their unique version. It's called a Berlin donor. Um, and we always loved that sandwich so much. So when we're like thinking about our club, we're like, oh, we'd have a little donor stand so people can have a sandwich at the end of their night. When the club fell, we're like, oh, well, we still have this like idea for a donor shop. And we're like, why don't we just do that? And we saw a four lease sign in Kensington and we're like, might as well just go for it. Yeah, we had no experience at all. <laughs> and, and <laughs> How did like, together then? Well, it was just us four. We've already been throwing parties for a long time, but we had no experience in food. I think one of my partners worked in Taco Bell for like two weeks. Uh, <laughs> it was probably fired. I don't know. Like, <laughs> But that was like the extent of the food industry experience that we collectively had. So yeah. that's pretty bad. But because we had no experience, of course, like everything was quite painful. Like you're learning everything for the first time. But I think because we had no restaurant experience we didn't feel like there was a way that things had to be done like we just build processes build the model build everything without that constraint and so we just like think about what would make sense what would make sense for the neighborhood you know and bringing back some of that music experience of thinking about what is that overall experience how what do you want people to take away from it how does the brand the look the sound the production of the piece and what does staff say how do you like make people feel welcome and stuff like that and how do you be part of the neighborhood's culture those were all things that maybe like a typical chef-led restaurateur may not think about as much because they're thinking about it from the perspective of just food and service Mm -hmm. which is more traditionally where a lot of people who come from the food industry will come from so not that we are like theatrical but because we think about production we think about experience We think about how do you get a brand out there that people will like. We definitely approach a restaurant a little bit differently. And fortunately, it worked out. But it was really terrifying, for sure. (laughs) I was, like, very, like, terrified because I was, like, oh, my God. You know, pretty much every business we go through this, but it's, like, oh, we just made the biggest mistake of our life. And, like, literally for months after, we still feel that just because – It takes a while for businesses to stabilize and you don't know if it will stabilize or not until it gets to that point. Doing a uh, beer hall wasn't a total surprise. Like we talked about it. Oh, if we did a spinoff, what could that look like? Maybe it'll be something more centric around beer. But business is not perfect in the sense that you can always plan out exactly when you're going to do things. It doesn't work that way. It works based on opportunity 
So we realized that that space was going to be free. We're like, oh, that is the perfect space to put in a beer hall. And we have a lot of history in that building because we've thrown a lot of events in that building. It just made a lot of sense to be there. But we only, based on like the amount of money that we had and everything, we only had two months really <laughs> to get it up. And we're like, okay, uh, all right, whatever, let's just do it. So like every day it was testing food, every day working on branding, every day like literally we're designing as we build. We'll tear walls down and be like, what's under here? Oh, that's actually kind of cool. Okay, let's incorporate. <laughs> there was a lot of things I would have probably done a little bit differently now, but I'm still like happy because <laughs> it's two months. <laughs> it's two months, which is crazy. That's the thing though, like you can't really perfectly plan everything. Like we thought we were going to open a club and, you know, three years, we're just like, we have to just push aside this idea but if you're constantly thinking about stuff you have ideas um where you start to at least crystallize in your mind sometimes we'll build like a mood board for some random idea that we have to start thinking about like what it would look like and how it would feel and what is the experience we want to create but really it ultimately is like the opportunities that come that decide what we do and when it comes to brick and mortar businesses it's ultimately real estate it's like, oh, this space would be perfect for this type of concept that we've been thinking about. Um, so that's kind of... How would you know which one is perfect for what, though? Um, I mean, there's like a few different things. Like first is like neighborhood, right? What is the immediate surrounding area? What type of people are there, right? So at Kensington, of course, like we can't come in with this like super gentrified experience doing something a little bit different a new food item that doesn't exist in toronto that's exactly the right tone i think for kensington while queen west a part of it was identifying that there is something missing on this street you know it actually really came to like a friend just saying oh like i have no idea where to put my birthday party on queen like everything is tiny and there's no like place I can actually bring like 30 people together and have a big dinner. Then so we're like, oh, okay, this place would be perfect for that. And if we did a beer hall and we had big tables and feast platters and like one liter beers and stuff like that, it's going to be the place for celebration. And it's going to be a place for that. And it's nice to see that concept actually come to fruition because people do come to the beer hall to celebrate their birthdays and, and other things as well. So going back to the question... It is looking who that the audiences around that neighborhood, also what that neighborhood culturally represents, um, making sure that you're doing something that is part of it that isn't going to destroy it, or you know destroy it a little bit, but in like right. the right way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or or offer something complete. Yeah, right. offer something new that neighborhood may want or doesn't always want, but may want. And then yeah, what are the needs in the neighborhood? You know, and how can we solve for that? Uh, so, so the Chinese restaurant, part of it is like me living on West End and always being like, oh, I can't like, there's no like Chinese food around me. <laughs> oh, I just want to eat Chinese food around me. And so it's like almost totally selfish. So it's like, oh, this space, it's like got a good rent, everything. We can do Chinese food here. Yeah. So like, sometimes it can be totally selfish. Many successful entrepreneurial stories I have encountered personally always started with efficiency on solving a problem. The I can't believe this doesn't exist mentality is usually the motivation. So I'm not too surprised that this is the reason Got Social Food Club started. First for the name, 
we chat about this when yeah. we visit you in the restaurant. It's that it's kind of like tongue in cheek. Yeah. At the same time, it's you, you are taking the risk. Tell me about how the name come about. I will just say that coming up with a name is, I think, the hardest part of any of our businesses or brands that we've created. Like, we're not natural copywriters and we're not like blue sky type creatives. So, for that, is like very stressful for us. We have a methodology for it. Like, we have like Excel sheets where we look at movies that we like, we look at books, literature. We try to get inspired by culture to give us some ideas and starting points. And then we literally like will go through processes of condensing that list until we reach some that really? we like. It's pretty ridiculous. But do you remember how many names were on that list? Probably like 300, maybe what? more, maybe more, to be honest. Sometimes wow. it's just like a word that we like and we want to figure out how to incorporate it. Mm-hmm. So like... So it wasn't like a poetic story. <laughs> no, like, oh, no but but me. I will say that like the name Soso was a bit of a random moment. I'm trying to think back exactly what happened. We're we're just talking about um, Chinese restaurant names, how they're all like kind of ridiculous, like <laughs> legendary, famous, like excellent dumpling house, you know, fortune, and we're like, uh, what if we're just like okay. You know, like so so, and then someone's like, "I like so so." Like we're just so so, <laughs> and then we're like, "I'm like, I don't know if this is a great name or a horrible name, <laughs> but I think it's and I think it's cheeky, and I think it would be intriguing for people. Like, why would a restaurant ever call themselves so so? But it's also very risky because if your food is so so, people will say, "Well, so so is so so." Definitely had like a couple of comments online that say that. So you're always like, "Yeah, okay, obviously, of course you're gonna say that." You know, like, "Bravo for coming up with the <laughs> the diss of the year." But it's always like risky name to put forward because now you're setting up the fact that you have to be anything but so so. The space needs to like be the opposite of that branding the food the experience that you get it has to be good otherwise the name doesn't work mm-hmm. yeah and tell me about the food because i had it and it was amazing <laughs> not spicy enough as i told you really yeah it wasn't yeah, okay because i love spicy but okay. you can tell me because yeah what was really spicy but you had to tone yeah. it down a little bit yeah because I was born in Guiyang, so oh yeah, yeah, yeah. the Sichuan province. Oh, okay. So of course, I can do I don't know even what, what kind of level of spice. Yeah. So, yeah. So I wouldn't be a normal person yeah. to put a standard on. But tell me about how all the like food menu and everything come about. Uh, well, obviously, I've always wanted to do a Chinese restaurant. As a Chinese person, and you you're in the restaurant business, you know eventually you want to go back to what you had at home so it's always been in my head that eventually i will do chinese food so at home we ate a lot of chinese food my mom she was not stuck with one region because we lived in hong kong she's from tianjin my dad's from henan and we travel with so they're Ch- both actually from north. They're, they're both from mainland china yeah but for north yeah china. yeah and i have relatives in shanghai and then um, grew up in Hong Kong. So even just like where we're from is like North South China. And then my parents will always take me traveling to China because they wanted me to know my country and they wanted me to eat the country's food. So we went to Sichuan all over basically, like North to South. So like I never just ate one type of Chinese cuisine. I ate a lot of different kinds of Chinese cuisine. 
Um, and at home, we would have like Taiwanese chicken and, and at the same time, like a Cantonese, like double broiled soup. And then like northern like zhajiangmian. And so like every day was just different parts of China was in whatever I was eating. So for me, I wanted to bring that through a restaurant experience. I wanted to show people what the breadth of Chinese cuisine and try to do it as well as we can. You know, it's mostly because like a lot of our friends here, they tend to go to dim sum, you know, they may eat like late night Chinese food, but noodles are getting a little bit bigger. So people are having noodles and stuff like that. But still, most people don't really like understand that China's this massive country that has so many different like cultures and minorities and cuisines within it. So it was really about being able to show them that. So we're starting with more Sichuan, Shanghai, a little bit Hong Kong. But over time, the menu is going to change and develop. And I want to highlight other regions. I want to highlight different items as well. Yeah. yeah. That's why I found it very exciting and fascinating. It's because many of my friends who are not Chinese, they mm. would think, oh, Sasha, take me to Chinese food. And then I was like, do you want real Chinese food? Because mm-hmm. they, in their kind of concept, is Chinese food would be like sweet sour chicken ball. And then they were like, <laughs> I was like, we never had that in China. <laughs> and then the fortune cookies are not coming from China. Yeah, from California. Yeah. So it's like, oh, culture and then in terms of food has been kind of misinterpreted mm-hmm. to fit into the western market yeah in a way it helped many chinese immigrants to survive but at the same time i think also kind of buried this culture here yeah and i'm not creating this restaurant just for like chinese people or western people i think it for me it was just on one side how do you get chinese people to be very proud of their cuisine too you know, and the real cuisine, not what it's developed in North America, mostly because you don't want your food just to be like a late night, really cheap thing, you know? Um, Yeah, because growing up in Hong Kong, Chinese food was definitely elevated all the time. You get really great, well-made, like super thoughtful Chinese food. And I wanted to bring that here to say like, Chinese food is so difficult to make. It is a skill and it can be creative and it can be artistic and all that stuff. So I wanted to bring that sense of pride in our food, in our technique, in our flavors. On the other side, I want to start like educating people that there are so many different kinds of Chinese cuisine here. You can come here and just like taste and see what you like. And within Toronto right now, there's so many uh, new regional cuisines for Chinese, but they're mostly run by Chinese people. Like if you go on Uber Eats, their menus are in like Mandarin, mm-hmm. right? It's like, this is like pretty authentic regional Chinese food, but it's still like kind of for the niche of Chinese people here. But I want people to realize that there's so much incredible Chinese food that's in around the GTA. And this could be maybe be an introduction into finding that, no, oh, I really like Fujian or I really like Sichuan. So I'm going to look at other other Sichuan restaurants. It's yeah. not going to be so scary for me. Right. And you also even start a conversation, right? Some people might even think Chinese food is just one type of food. Yeah. But as you also shared, there's so many minorities, so many different cultures within China. Yeah. Also, uh, there's a kind of education or information yeah. component to it, which is kind of hard in terms of like having a restaurant because you almost have to get people to get used to it or even have like um, confidence to give it a try. So would you say that was the biggest challenge? Or if not, what kind of challenges have you have to conquer? I think the biggest challenge actually has been with with actual Chinese people, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because on one side a lot of the dishes are very home style and on the other side they can be quite creative so they come in with this perception that it's going to be like fusion food and maybe they're actually more comfortable with the idea that it would be more highly fusion than home style so why would you think being fusion might be even more acceptable We were never set out to create fusion because I didn't want the message to be that Chinese flavors with French technique or Italian technique makes better food. I want to be like Chinese food with Chinese technique or like even other flavors with Chinese techniques can be great food because Chinese techniques are actually very advanced. Like pulling noodles, making things from total scratch, like we do everything from scratch. It is very painstaking work. I didn't want it to be like oh, we have to be like creating it like a pasta and stuff like that or in order to get a higher price point. I think that's a big touchy part with Chinese people that come in is that we're doing something that they would have at home because we do everything from scratch. Every sauce is made from scratch and like all the dough and everything that we charge a little bit higher because every part is a lot of labor, but also we source really high quality ingredients, especially when it comes to meat and seafood. So because it's all ethical and sustainable, it does have a higher price point. I think that's the, the sticking point. As we develop the menu, we're sticking with a lot of Chinese techniques. We may do some more exploration in flavor and look at different regions within China, but even like maybe other areas in Asia. I don't want to be totally constrained from a creative perspective, but I think for me the message was that we didn't have to merge it with French or Italian or whatever in order to create a certain level of food. So what do you parents think about so so? Have they tried the food yet? My mom has. She's like, everything's so salty. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I actually don't think it's too salty. But then, I, I didn't. Like, I didn't. I was like, I had a lot more salty food in China than this. I think my parents are like they weren't comfortable with what I was doing for a long time. Like, why would you throw your degree away and like throw parties essentially? And it was a very tough few years in the beginning of my career because basically other people in my family would say stuff like, "Oh, you know, your parents gave you so much, and you just you're literally." doing something you don't need a degree for what are you doing but now I think everyone sees that quite differently and they understood that where I am at this point could not have happened if I didn't make those certain decisions when I was really young like I'm not going to continue to pursue my degree I'm not going to go into a normal job I'm not going to have a normal professional life I'm going to have a very almost constantly changing dynamic one but they always tell me to slow down. So I think they think I'm doing a third restaurant in the third year is a lot. But they know I always wanted to do my food. They always say, like, the most Chinese part of you is your eating habits. Because <laughs> I, I had Western education even in China. So they always say that. So I think they're happy, but they're also wary because it's like everyone who's Chinese understands how challenging it can be to do Chinese food well. Yeah. Whether it's having a design system and finalizing a name from 300 plus options or doing research about a neighborhood to find out if the restaurant is a good fit or not, Nancy's science background always comes to play. 
but to her, science and art is never too far apart from each other. People think of it as very different. Like science and art are completely different. Like almost like the polar opposite. But I really think that they are the same, mostly from my perspective. I think now you know if you go into a career of science, there's this perception that you're kind of like、um, very like logical, you know, very studious and. Rigorous, and you know you can do the same experiment a thousand times to get like the a statistically significant result. But science historically has been one of the most creative fields. And if you think about, well, I'm just going to say the an obvious one like Newton. Like a lot of the stuff was creative thinking that helped him reach the theories that we now use all the time. And there was so such a strong element of creativity. Within science, because you have to think about things in a new way, you have to look at problems in a new way and approach it in a new way, and that's a very creative process. I've never really thought about my science and art as necessarily separate. I've always thought about it as one of the same because it is about looking at things differently and then experimenting and trying and seeing how it works and adjusting. So. I don't think my creative process has been very separate from the science process. I constantly think about failure to the point that I'm not scared of failure. No, I am scared of failure. I'm definitely scared of failure. I'm gonna retract that. But I'm just saying that when you think about failure all the time, it just becomes less like unfamiliar and scary. Because sometimes we think about failure in a very like vague sense. It's just gonna be terrible. It's gonna be shit. You know, your life is over. And then you're like, oh, that'd be really bad if that happened. I lost all my money. I lost my reputation. I lost everything. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, obviously these are all the thoughts that go into my head. But then, you know, this is probably what I do to start getting out of it. Oh, you know, I can maybe make this move instead, and then it becomes less. Scary, because you're like,、oh, okay, well, even if the worst happened, you can you can probably think of of a way to make it less bad. <laughs> Instead of being very positive, I am like a pessimistic, negative person. But I think because I am pessimistic and negative, I'm actually less afraid to do stuff. That's really interesting. <laughs> I'm a pessimistic, <laughs> negative, yeah. Negative person, but it, that actually brought the advantages for you. Well, there's actually a lot of studies that show pessimistic people are way better entrepreneurs than optimists. And there's always this perception that, oh, for to be an entrepreneur, you need to be like very positive, and you know. But the thing is, positivity creates blinders, and you don't foresee the challenges. You're not realistic about what is in front of you. We are generally. Very realistic about all the possibilities that we may fail and how terrible that's going to be, and but that makes us better. Right. There's like a running joke at work where I'm miserable, and it's true. <laughs> I'm always miserable. After her nine to five on a weekday, Nancy would head to Soso and start her night at a restaurant. I admire her determination, her energy, and her compulsive drive. But in the meantime, I'm also wondering. Why she's putting so much weight on herself? It was just a realistic decision and financial decision 
for sure. The more we live off of our businesses, the harder it is for you to push that business and expand. Being able to do three restaurants in a row, if we were all like living off of our restaurants, we wouldn't have the money to be able to start a new place. You know, so that's a very just functional reason about it. And like my boyfriend, we've always had this agreement essentially that like I will work full times to weather any storm and then he can focus on really running a lot of the day-to-day operations. It's kind of like a division of labor in that sense of responsibility. But on the other side, it's also that like I don't know if I could run a restaurant and like operate it and be very fulfilled. I really love like the people that work with us and I love starting a restaurant and the food and the concepts and stuff like that. But I just don't think my strong suit is like managing and operating. And that's not, I think, what gets me into like a happy workplace. So for me, this allows me to do what I enjoy the most, which is thinking and building and concepting and um, and solving problems instead of piling on a more administrative work, which for me just doesn't make me happy day to day. So yes, on one side, it's just, it's a good arrangement that because there's no way anyone can work in advertising and have three restaurants on the side just on their own. It's good that I have partners and My boyfriend and I have this proper split. But the other thing is just I always ask myself, what do I enjoy doing the most every single day? And once I realized what that was, I was like, okay, then that's what I need to do every day. Mm. That makes sense because that kind of tied back to what you shared earlier about the music. The club you guys started before was you realized there's so many other parts you weren't really necessarily interested in doing. And then because you had to do it, that kind of like almost take the fun out of it. Yeah. So... I almost got a feeling you're probably going to have another idea in the next few years. Probably next year. <laughs> I don't know. It's like three, one, one, one every year. So I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea what it's going to be either. I have some thoughts in terms yeah, of what I would do. But always have ideas. But I want to do something totally different. I want to do something I'm so uncomfortable by. That's what I want to do. Yeah. I just don't know what it, what exactly it is. I'm in like an interesting phase right now. Because I don't think I want to start necessarily another restaurant, but I right, want to start something. Totally. Concept. Yeah. Cool. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> okay, so are you ready for the rapid fire? Oh, I hate rapid fire. Okay. You do? <laughs> I do. I hate, I can never think about a great answer in rapid Just fire. Just let it like, come to you. Okay. Like, <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> so something weird about you, not many people know of. Um, I'm really good at foosball. Oh. Yeah. So I used to play in university. And your ultimate favorite film? These are the hardest questions for me. Um, what is my ultimate favorite film? It changes. I mean, I do like a lot of Wong Kar Wai's films. Mm. Um, but that's such a cheesy answer, too. Yeah. yeah. But pick okay. one. I really like Chungking Express from Wong Kar Wai. Okay, now it's a package, so please use three or less words to describe the following. Love. Um, commitment. Art. <laughs> Exciting? I don't know. It's like... <laughs> Mistakes. Inevitable. Music. Stressful. 
AJ? Um, scary. So, so food club. Fun. What scares you the most? Not building something, I think, for me, it scares me. Um, the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Patience. For your next life, if you could choose to be born in any city in the world, which city would you pick? Probably London. Um, three pieces of advice or wisdom you can share with others. You really can just live whatever life you want. And this whole idea that you have to always compromise, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we stop ourselves from doing things more than like the world or society. You, you can do something unique or create your own path that's very distinct. Um, I think that would be one piece of advice. I think the second one goes back to the what I said, that you can learn anything. Um, like that I know that sounds very like inspirational and almost cheesy, but I really do believe that we tend to stop ourselves um, or, or we think we're like a math person or not a math person and stuff like that. And then you decide your life based on these things that make no sense. You can learn anything. And, and that's very powerful to remember all the time. People matters the most. Like, um, I think when I work a lot, sometimes I forget to be in touch with my friends and family. And that's, that's definitely a fault of mine. Um, but I think all of it doesn't matter if it, if it doesn't bring you kind of closer to your people and keep you connected. So I think that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And last, what are you currently seeking? Um, right now, I'm seeking what is the next step? I don't know, actually. It's a very interesting time for me where I actually don't know what I'm going to do next, but I think it's going to be very different. Cool, that's it. Okay, I told you I'm shitty at rapid fire, so I'm always like, I'm always like, ah. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm really grateful that Nancy took time out of her super packed schedule to chat with me. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you like Chinese food, make sure to visit Soso Food Club. I promise you, the food is really authentic. Really reminds me home. If you haven't done so, please head to Apple Podcast to give us a review. This will really mean a lot to us. And please head to our website, ideasecrets.com, to visit Nancy's home, captured by my friend Ray Yu. You can also meet us on Instagram, Spotify, and Pinterest at Dear Seekers. See you in two weeks. Until then, happy seeking.